marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. There are many ways available for consumers to use cannabis in Oregon's market. One of those options is an edible product. This episode, we speak with the founders of one of the first licensed edible producers in Oregon, They launched their business in 2010, crafting their handmade THC-infused food for the medicinal market and then transitioned to supplying the recreational market. It hasn't been an easy road, but their passion for the plant and their commitment to their customers has kept them standing while others have folded. Coming up, I'll introduce you to the couple behind LB's Edibles. You're listening to Mainstream Weedia. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Laura Brannon and Hovering LaPlante are the husband and wife team behind the Oregon company LB's Edibles, a small craft cannabis edibles company that has been doing things a little different, and that's exactly the way they like it. Let's get to the first question, and that is, what led you to, to the cannabis industry? Well, I can start with that. Uh, Initially, what led us to it is probably what most people get into the industry for. We were daily users or users of cannabis for most of our life. And so it was always an option for us, even when it was in the black market and gray market. It was just I'm an Oregon girl and it has always been around. Uh, So but then as we were we had a photography business and my best friend's mom got breast and lung cancer. And we were already growing weed for ourselves. Uh, Hovering has a medical card at the time. And so we were growing and using for him. But when my best friend's mom, Kathy, got sick, uh, we knew she couldn't smoke. So we just started making food for her. And she really just kind of let us know that the hardest part about cancer was everything. Uh, The making the phone calls, not having an appetite. And so she asked that if I made her food for it, just not to taste like weed. She just wanted it to be a really pleasant experience. 
And that's kind of what led us into the industry accidentally. We, from there, we went to a potluck where there was patients involved and some patients came up to us or some kids that worked at a dispensary. And this was back in the medical days. And they said, please come to our boss, Bo, at Brothers Cannabis. It's a medical dispensary and we really could use some food. So three weeks later, we quit our photography business and started our edibles business on July 1st, uh, 12 years ago, this July. And it was all started because of what patients needed. Yeah, our whole history comes from being users and medical patients ourselves and just really believing in it and experiencing the positive benefits of cannabis all around. And our focus has always been to enhance people's lives, not just kind of get people the highest that they can be, but truly to have it be a really positive experience in people's lives, knowing how medical patients usually, you know, most of their day is dealing with their medical conditions. We wanted our edibles to just be a real highlight of somebody's day, how it tasted, how it smelled, how it looked, mainly how it uh, medicated you. And so everything that we've done since then has really been focused on what would be best for a patient's consumption and use and transferring that into the recreational market once the rec market came around. Even how we make the foods, all of the foods, uh, when we started this 12 years ago, there wasn't any templates or recipes for cannabis industry. There was no cannabis industry. It was all very much talked quietly among different growers or different people who worked in food. And so I just used old fashioned recipes from the pioneer days when the moms or the cooks had to be the doctors. And so every ingredient we used in our food was for a specific purpose, especially during the medical days. Patients would come up to me and say, I have migraines or I'm constipated or I'm not hungry or I have indigestion. And then I would kind of do research about how moms and doctors used to treat everything with like lemon and cinnamon and all of the different foods that we could use. And then I just infused that with can of butter that Hovering made. And we found out that really, truly making foods to counteract symptoms was the most helpful for us. And that's really what we did for the entire time we were in the medical industry. And then when we went to recreational, uh, the rules were so overwhelming. And we also knew that we just really kind of wanted to stay with the focus of treating patients and making food be amazing tasting, smelling, looking, and that it treated things. Uh, Now, the OLCC says we're not allowed to say that our food treats anything. So we just kept our own recipes and it's kind of word of mouth at this point. Do you believe that your customers are still primarily medicinal or do you think the recreational crowd has caught on to your products? I think primarily our customers are using it medicinally, whether they understand it's for medicinal reasons or not. One of the things that we get a lot uh, for the people who are looking for edibles in general, they're not looking usually to get super, super high and like party all night long. They're usually looking to sleep or their muscles ache or they just have this general feeling that they don't feel great. Those are usually people who seek out edibles in general or people who need to discreet uh, medicate discreetly like they're at home with kids or co-workers that they can't know. For us, we do feel like uh, whether they realize it or not, it's definitely patient driven. Uh, And I think that once people find relief with our food, they come back not only because it tastes great, but really they're getting that thing they need. They're getting that night of sleep. Or we hear a lot of people that are older who like to eat our edibles because then they can get on the ground and play with their grandkids or play with their kids. And they're more creative and they're more open. And so 
that might not be a medical prescription, but I think it's a life prescription, right? It's definitely helping. You founded LB's Edibles in 2010 in the medicinal market, and then you transitioned through the passage of Measure 91. Walk me through what it was like in the early days of business, and then that regulatory transition from medicinal to a recreational market. It's been a particularly challenging situation for people such as ourselves. We're a small mom and pop, very high level product, craft product here made in Oregon. We're very proud of what we do, but the industry is still catching up to kind of what's going on out there in the world. And so that's been one of the most challenging things. We didn't have a big bankroll when we started doing this. We were helping patients in their homes and in parking lots before this. We were one of the very first companies licensed to produce edibles in Oregon, and we are one of the oldest brands in Oregon for sure. But that has had its challenges because we had a facility for making recreational edibles, but we had to be paying for it for a number of years before actually we were able to sell into the market. It's been a really slow rollout, and one of the biggest challenges that we've run into is running a business in a market that is being regulated while you're running it means that we have had dozens of times over the last six years where rules will change and we have to be immediately on these changes within the next day. Sometimes we have a little bit bigger kind of lead time on when we have to be compliant with these. But as these rules roll out, they have a really big impact on how we operate. It can cost tens of thousands of dollars in a matter of 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just have to change what you're doing. And so it's been really challenging um, in general. It's one of the most regulated industries of anything. You can kind of liken it towards pharmaceuticals, the way things are tracked. And so as things have been developing through the past years, we've been highly involved in the process. LB was on the Rules Advisory Committee for the state in the very first days when they were making the rules, having many meetings about telling them about how edibles work and how they're produced and how to do it safely and effectively. I was called in on emergency meetings. We've had numerous staff members on the different rules advisory committees. We've been around long enough that we have been a trusted resource as far as knowledge about the industry, but the regulators are very hesitant about moving things too quickly or into these zones that they feel are unsafe. Trusting the experts for some reason, there's a feeling that they think we're trying to get away with stuff. And really, truly, we're just trying to run our businesses. And it is very challenging when you are trying to run a business and you do not have a bank account. And if you don't have a bank account, you can't have credit cards. And if you can't have credit cards, you can't have lines of credit. And to run a business without credit in this world is nearly impossible. And so you're really limited on what vendors you can work with and who will take your cash and who won't. And so that's really challenging. (laughs) No, particularly in the early days, just finding a landlord who would rent a property to us, knowing what we were going to do. This was before before recreation passed. And so, and like LB was saying, even to find vendors who would work with us, there were packaging companies that wouldn't work with us. Moral obligations. Once they heard we're cannabis, it was... It's been very challenging to just get access to very basic business services through the years. Now that's opening up and getting better and better, but on a small business like ours, it's been challenging all along the way, for sure. You know, you asked what the challenges are. The challenges are we're creating a new industry live in action. And that's that's really unheard of right now, right? And so most anytime you open a business, 
there's some kind of template out there so you know what kind of building to rent or what kind of machinery to get. And truly, that's not available for us. And so that's really challenging. We're inventing the mousetrap as we're using the mousetrap over and over again. We've been informing the regulators as they've been regulating us. And so, and that's coming from all different people in the industry. Um, In the early days, we used to have association meetings and there were probably three dozen edible companies there. I think there's less than a handful of those people who are left in the industry at this point. It has been super challenging on anybody who has not had strong financial backing or coming in from some other industry. But a none, lot of the, none of our peers have made it. Nobody that started with us 12 years ago is still in the industry at all. Uh, it's really sad. We talk about this a lot, that if you're a pioneer, that the, the trail is littered with corpses. And there's a lot of really great companies in Oregon and a lot of amazing people who are no longer in business because it is just a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week problem. And you're just constantly working on it. It's challenging, but it's worth it. Let me ask you about your peers that didn't make it. Did they end up forfeiting their licenses or... Were they bought out by bigger and in some cases probably out-of-state businesses? Yeah, a combination of those things. One of the things that Oregon did in the early days that made it really challenging for the local businesses was accepted outside investment and outside money. That was the one thing that really made it hard for the mom and pops to survive in this industry as soon as big money was able to come in and set up shop. And so... If we could go back and change one thing, that would probably be the one thing that we would have changed and just kept it local, kept it Oregon and allowed these small businesses to flourish and provide the jobs. But that's that's not where we end up. I've actually spoken to many people that have said that if they could have changed anything, that they would have had a residency requirement on the license here in Oregon. And I keep hearing of especially Canadian interest coming in and preying on those small businesses, the moms and pops that just couldn't make the margin or couldn't keep up with the regulation changes. And then here's a Canadian conglomerate more than happy to take that license from them. We have had ridiculous conversations with people who wanted to invest in us or buy our license. It's very insulting. And I'm really sorry for the people who have had to be caught up in that because most everyone who's worked in this industry who started in this industry, for sure, they did this for a reason. And it wasn't just to get rich. You know, those of us who work in this industry, we knew without banking, we knew that it was going to be really, really tough. Nobody thought that they were going to make a bunch of money. That was just marketing that other people did. Uh, But the people who actually worked in this industry knew it was going to be a really long road. So it really did a disservice to those people who generationally had been growing weed or generationally had been making products out of the weed. For them to have to lose their right to work in this state, it's been a really tough pill to swallow. It's just been really sad. We've watched so many of our friends just burn out and go and taking a toll on us as well. This has been the hardest thing that we have ever done in our lives, by far, by far, the hardest. Why do you still fight the fight? What has kept you in this industry? Well, I'm stubborn and he's rewarded. <laughs> well, what, I, what I say to a lot of people is that when you break it all down, we love food and we love weed. So much. And so are those two passions of ours, what LB can do with creating the products that we do and the food. She's what's known as a super taster. She's got more taste buds than other people. She really dials in our recipes. And like she was saying, with the ingredients she uses, and the thought that goes into everything, we are foodies. We want everything to taste amazing. But we also love weed and we believe in the benefits that it can bring to your life if used 
Like if you find the right company and you find the right edible, now all companies and edibles aren't created equally. And that's one of the challenges is that people don't understand that if they didn't have a good experience, it could just be changing companies or changing products. Right. Or often is the case they've tried edibles while they've been consuming alcohol. And that's not a good idea. The number one thing that can create problems for people. And they think it's the edible. But truly, it's the fact that both the alcohol and the edible are being processed in your liver at the same time, and your renal system gets overloaded. And so as that delta-9 THC molecule is converting to delta-11 in your liver, which is a much more stronger potent molecule for the edible, like they just don't party well together. They don't party well together. There's all kinds of things that party together well. Smoking a joint and drinking a whiskey, fantastic idea if you're hanging at home. Edibles and, Edibles and whiskey, not. not a good idea. If you eat an edible, you can drink something later, an hour or two later, once you know where your dose is. But we really tell people, don't drink first and then add an edible. You're going to get sweaty. You're going to feel panicky. And nobody needs to spend their time feeling like that. That's just not fun. That's usually almost 100% where the initial bad stories come from. Somebody gets a little brave because they've got some alcohol in them. And then they say, oh, I'll try that edible. And it's just not the right way to go about it, um, particularly if you're inexperienced. The common story that I hear when it comes to edibles, especially with people that have very little experience, is that they don't anticipate how long it takes before you start feeling the effects of the edible. And at some point they think, oh, I must not have taken enough and ingest more. I don't mean to laugh. It's just it's a horrible story that we hear all the time. It's about instant gratification, right? And so it's just not going to be that way with an edible. You're not going to be instantly changed. And so it's more about training people how they treat edibles, right? And so it's not like a shot of Jack Daniels and you're going to feel it immediately. Edibles, like we we just try to really make it so people understand it's here to enhance your life. There's a lot of marketing about whether an edible is a sativa or an indica. Will it help you sleep or will it help you stay awake? That's a lot of marketing uh, because edibles don't really work that way. And so what we try to tell people is whatever you want to do on an edible, you can do it on an edible. I could eat 30 milligrams of an edible and I could go to sleep. I could watch some TV and go to sleep. I can eat 30 milligrams of an edible and I could get on a bicycle and go for a ride. But it's a journey, right? You're not going to feel it right away. And so we kind of just try to tell people you kind of have to, it's more of a planning your night than a spontaneous thing. And it's not much different from what other people understand with other substances that affect your consciousness. You know, there are people who say, okay, we're going out to that dinner party. I'm going to have this one drink before we go out. I know I'm going to be fine. And, you know, I'm not going to be driving, but still like, even with edibles, we're like, okay, like, you know, that for us, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes before we're going to be doing what we want to be doing, we consume our edible. And then it hits us at the right time. And the way our edibles are made, they last for a good long time. So it's, it's ideal for things like playing with your kids, exercising, going, going to, to a long show you're not really wanting concert. to go to. <laughs> I sat through a high school graduation with some edibles in one of my drinks. It was like four hours long. It was fine. Yeah. And so that it can really play to your advantage if once you're familiar with how they work and the, the delayed effects. Because again, once you're familiar with the company and their infusion process and what you're consuming from them, that's where you can really plot out how to safely and successfully consume. And that is one of the things that's kind of different about our edibles. We're one of the very few companies in Oregon that infuses with can of butter. And 
we're also really different because we single source all of our uh, cannabis from one farm, Doghouse, which is a big farm out of Salem, and there are multiple states. And John, the owner of Doghouse, has been amazing in believing in our company and believing in the power of edibles. He is he makes sure that we get bud, we get close trim. He gives us this really amazing product, and then hovering turns that into can of butter. And so the difference between what we do and what other people do is that we have the full flower, the full spectrum of the flower in the can of butter. And a lot of edibles are made with extracts of distillates, which is just one part of the flower or just tiny parts of the flower. So when you eat our edibles, they definitely feel like they last longer and that you get higher. And that's true. And so for us, it's really important that our customers start really low with ours. If you've been eating a 20 milligram gummy, please just try 10 milligrams of ours because it's going to feel different. Again, it's that process of knowing why you're taking edibles. You're altering your conscience. You're trying to feel better. So it's about planning your life kind of around it. And another thing that we definitely know from medical days is really the, the power of the edible and the cannabis is going to go to what is ailing you first. And anything that's left over is going to go to the psychoactive part for you. So if you're in super good health with nothing really wrong with you, basically all that edible is going to go up to your head in the psychoactive way. But most of us have aches and pains. Yes. We've got things that we know about or don't know about. Um, <laughs> but truly, once that edible goes into you, that cannabis is going to start working on all those parts of your system. We have this re fabulous receptor system in our body for cannabinoids. Yeah, we are supposed amazing. to be intaking these. They're supposed to be part of our system because they help us. And so as soon as you kind of can tap into that and realize that, oh, I'm not feeling like all head high from this, but I am feeling kind of better. I've got, I'm sitting looser. I'm standing a little bit better. Why am I feeling good? Like I normally have some aches and pains. We say that's when you're perfectly dosed and yeah. perfectly medicated where you're not like, oh, I like I've had too much where you're just like, wait, why, why am I feeling so good? And then you're like, oh, I don't have that ache or my back's not hurting like it did. Or like, I am just feeling generally better. I've got this little smile on my face. And that's when you're perfectly dosed. Yeah, we, we do believe in, in micro dosing with edibles or just finding your dose and kind of living there. Uh, it's, you know, there's definitely times when you want to get high and get out of your head. And I understand that, but that's like a treat. You do that once in a while. And with edibles, it's more, again, just about making your life better, just feeling better, getting through your day better. Being a pioneer in the Oregon cannabis industry, what is it that Oregon can be proud of? as an industry, what did Oregon do right? Well, for sure, just getting the system regulated and up and running. A very big challenge when we only had two states ahead of us who were doing what was going on. Colorado, which had a bit of a different model in Washington as well. It was one of those things where just getting up and running, that was a positive. Now the licensing- I'm a positive. We're not incarcerating people in cannabis in Oregon. That's the biggest positive. We were putting way too many people in jail for smoking weed. So I give Oregon big props for that. Licensing fees, small, was simple. They are still, they're still, they're still, huge. they're still 10 times what it is for another business that's operating just a shoe store or, you know, $500 for a city license for a bar, we're $5,000. That said, our, mm -hmm. our licensing fees are about just under $1 a year. And so if you think about a company trying to come up with $20,000 a year for licensing, it's not actually that budget friendly, especially a small mom and pop. So I want to give them a C plus on that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, there were significant challenges. They got the, the system up and running. Um, they've been taking the input. It has been challenging. And certainly we believe it 
it could be an improved system. Absolutely. That's yes. why we stay involved with the rulemaking process and try to get as much feedback as possible from a practical level and from a historical level. So yeah, you know, it's, um, again, it's, it's a very highly regulated market where there weren't many models to kind of go off of. And so Oregon has been making regular changes to the rulemaking, which is a double-edged sword. It's great that they keep tweaking the rules to make them better, hopefully, uh, but it also means you have to be really nimble. And so a small company like ours has some advantages in that these shifts that have to be done because of rulemaking aren't we're not having to do over a really big kind of corporate system. Now, what do you feel is the biggest challenge at the state level that you still really need to be addressed? There is something that would certainly help the industry across 100%. the entire playing board, and that's social, social consumption. consumption. Like, you just have to support that it's a lifestyle. We can't get tourists into our state to enjoy cannabis because you can't smoke it at hotels. There's no smoking lounges. Uh, you can't smoke it in campgrounds. You can't smoke it in parks. Uh, you're not even really supposed to use the lotion in public. Like there is literally no, there's no way to use the product in public. And if you don't live here or you live with kids or you live with family members who don't want, where are you supposed to go? And that would just help this industry so much. And it would help the state of Oregon, the tourism dollars. Uh, one of the things that uh, I follow, we watch Channel 6 all the time, is Portland dead? Uh, you know, the biggest, saddest thing that I see going on in Portland right now is, why aren't we having smoking bars? Why aren't we opening up downtown so there's cannabis consumption lounges? You will get tourists to go down there. You will get people to spend money on food after they get stoned. You will get people to spend money on parking, to go to shows. It's a really great way to revitalize Portland. And that's the main reason I'm still pushing in this industry is I was born near 1968. I want this city to survive and I want weed to be part of the city, but we're just not getting any help in tourism or social consumption. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that would certainly help the industry, just the, the normalization. You know, we need to understand that this, like other substances, are legal for adults to use, but you're able to have tasting rooms, you're able to be at these festivals. Treat us like wineries. There are a lot of things that it would be pretty easy if you took current models for, say, the alcohol industry or other things going on, that you just port that over to, to cannabis. And what would be helpful for Oregon is for the, the regulators and the legislators to to start opening up and be like, wow, yeah. we're, we're years into this and we have not seen the problems that were forecasted in the early days. We need to kind of loosen things up as opposed to tighten them up. And so it would be helpful to get that support from, from the travel industry and from the different counties and the different towns I mean, we to, watch, to embrace it and, and uh, help it thrive. We watch Oregon. We watch how Oregon markets itself and we watch how the news stories go. And it's a very liquor, wine, bourbon, microbrew state. And that's how we market ourselves. And so people come here for that. But also there's a whole generation of people. We're in our 50s and our, our parents are in their 70s and 80s. These people would like to come and travel somewhere where they can smoke weed. They've been waiting their entire life for weed to be legal but they can't do anything with it yet. You can't have a weed wedding. You can't have a weed party. You can't have like, you know, it just, it's not normalized in any way. And if it was, 
uh, that would help Oregon so much. Wouldn't it be great if people came here to get married and have a weed wedding cake and weed bar? It's, you know, like it can be right next to the microbrew bar. We can do both of these things in the state. We're not asking to replace. We're asking to be elevated to the same standard of adult entertainment. Just be a part of it. Like we are, Oregon is so about craft products and local products. And there is a huge craft cannabis industry in Oregon that doesn't get the type of attention that it deserves. I mean, there are people doing fantastic things with the flower that they're growing and people doing fantastic things with edibles and right. concentrates. And Amazing so mark makers. Embracing the craft aspect of cannabis, I think would be really beneficial. So yeah, we're passionate about that one. <laughs> I know one of the issues the industry still faces is a cannabis stigma, whether it's at the legislative level or it's at the municipal level or it's even at the consumer level. What do you think it's going to take to normalize the cannabis industry here in Oregon? It's really easy. It starts with Channel 6 and it ends with Wyden and Kennedy. It's about marketing. It's about getting news stories. We've invited your crew, the morning guy here. We've invited him to our bakery a couple of times, but I don't know if you're, uh, you know, if your company allows it or not. But that's the thing. Make stories about the people who are making the edibles hit the news. Have White and Kennedy do a marketing thing for cannabis. It is, it's all marketing, right? When I spoke with the Oregon Cannabis Association, I mentioned something similar a public service campaign to help shape the narrative. But as far as the news goes, while we have been slower to cover the industry, this podcast is one of the ways that Coin6 News can help tell the story of the industry. We need you to. We need you to because when we create content for social media, our accounts are shut down. So, you know, we can't use cannabis on Facebook. We can't use cannabis in TikTok. Like, until... Regular media takes over. It's really hard for us to get in front of that lens, but it's so, so important to us, right? It's really important. We we hit newspapers. We want to, we'll talk to anybody. It's really important that this gets normal because it is the difference between us staying open as an industry and not staying open. This is uh, really a chicken and the egg problem, and it needs to be attacked from both ways. And we're very appreciative that you're doing it from your side. And what will happen is as things become more normalized, we can actually be in financially better situations. So then we can start advertising, which then allows that industry to say, oh, there's money being made here in advertising. Let's help kind of do it. It's kind of that flywheel thing that we need to get moving and we need just really push from all different sides on it. But listen, normalizing, it's going to be my life's work. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to be really, I'll feel like we've done something when I'm at the Rose Garden or the Rose Center and there's an edibles available. You can buy wine, you can buy hot dogs, and you can buy an edible. Whatever you want to watch that Blazer game or to see Moulin Rouge musical. Like we think it should just be an option that's available in public, just like alcohol is everywhere. I'd love for that to be at the Trailblazer game. I would go see a Trailblazer game if I could be stoned. You know, and and to be invited and to be allowed to be at something like the Bite of Portland, which is a food focused event down on the waterfront. The fact that we can't set up there as a craft edible company born and bred in Oregon. That's not true. We've been invited to those things. We're just not allowed to give out any of our products. They would like the money for the table and to hang our banner, but we're not allowed to give out any samples or anything like that. So there's always that bridging of you can't, don't be afraid of us. We're, you're handing out little shots of whiskey. We would just be handing out little bites of an edible. It's, you know, it would be fine. We're, nobody would die. 
Do you know if there have been talks with the regulators or the legislators to at least maybe do a very closed, controlled, regulated festival? I don't think on the upper levels. Portland had a festival a number of years ago where they had it regulated. And, smoking. You know, they, they, they made sure that there were fences up so nobody could see what was going on inside it. The summer fair, I think it was called. And it was very successful. And I wish that Portland had said, wow, look at this went off really well. Let's have a couple of them next year and next year. Like we could have built on that. And so so there are those conversations. But even before that, you know, the High Times Cannabis Cup wanted to come to Oregon and they couldn't find a venue that would rent to them either. And so it also has to do with that. Like the High Times Cannabis Cup, I would imagine we would probably have at least at least 50,000 visitors for that, probably upwards. And the amount of money that they would spend on hotels, restaurants, and doing the Shanghai tunnel tours and doing the Bruce cycle tours. Like, you know, people want to come to Portland for the Portland experience. And part of that experience should be including getting high because I was born here in 1968 and I have been getting high in Portland my entire life, basically. And so that that's not part of our history or celebrated as part of our tourism is a real miss for Oregon. We're just, couldn't we have cannabis tourism? Couldn't we be the city that's clean and beautiful and do all of those things because we have tourists coming? I know it helped Amsterdam. I know it's helped a lot of countries and cities that had problems with graffiti and homelessness and trash. And then they said, hey, why don't we try this thing called cannabis tourism? And then the city actually benefited from it. And, you know, it kind of worked out great. It would be something that Portland could really look at. Let's talk about the federal government. Do you believe we're close to federal reform? No, I don't. Why not? They are looking at a bill in the House this week and looking to pass that. The problem gets when we get to the Senate, for sure. There's vast support for cannabis, all the polling across the entire United States. But there are really entrenched interests and there are people that benefit from it not being federal. And there are people that are looking for it to hold off on being federal until they're better positioned. Once you get into the politics of it, it's really hard to predict where it's going to go. It's going to end up there eventually. I just have a very cynical view on it. You know, we the, our country's in such turmoil about any topic at all. Uh, and to get everybody on board to change that is seems like a really big leap right now. And it doesn't serve anybody to have federal cannabis right now. It doesn't serve the pharmaceutical industry. It doesn't serve alcohol. It doesn't serve tobacco. And those are the lobbyists that have the biggest, strongest muscles. And so that's when you're when you're fighting about changing something that is has been a social experiment that is obviously working out well. And if that's not the argument, if the argument isn't the social experiment, if we've proven that there's less drinking and driving, we've proven that less kids are smoking weed, we've proven that there's money for the roads and the schools, then there's got to be a bigger block than that. And I always think that progress is going to be mightily slow. Uh, it's, It's no different than a basic rights or a human rights movement. It's going to take decades and decades and decades, and it's going to go forward and back and forward and back. And so I I just don't feel like it's, I think we're at least 20 years out, at least. And I think what we see definitely in Oregon would be on the federal level too. It's just the way that laws are made and the, the slow pace that things go up, that the industry is always going to be far ahead of the rules. And we see that in Oregon. The, yeah. the laws are trying to catch up with where things were at six months ago. 
but things are already passed where those rulemaking committees started what, for what's being implemented now. Things have changed so much over the course of that time. And so and cannabis has changed so much in the decade. Right. The, the laws and the rules that were set up for Colorado, they might not be the same rules that we need now. And how are you going to intermesh all of the state rules and make it, you know, and then the, where does the FDA come in and how is banking going? Is banking suddenly going to be OK? Are you suddenly going to be able to get a home or a, a business loan? And, you know, that's that's a lot of. A lot of skin on that onion, right? Even if it doesn't clear the Senate, there is talk about bringing the Safe Banking Act back for a vote. Would that be enough for now? No, not for me. Uh, And let me tell you about the Safe Banking Act. Uh, I'm a queer activist. And so I worked all through before the AIDS crisis, during the AIDS crisis, gay marriage. And when you start compromising, like, oh, well, we'll just have domestic agreements. Suddenly you are a subcategory of person in the United States. Something like that will continue to make our industry not quite legitimate, not quite the same. And so then the fees are going to be more and then the interest is going to be more. And there's always going to be this penalty unless it's equal. And so for me, I think that's really scary language because I've been through it as a woman. I've been through it as a queer person. When you don't have exactly the same rights as the other people that you're doing work with, it's going to be harder to do business. And so that's a scary one for me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a problem not having the banking uh, for the industry, but there are so many problems around just not having the it be okay. Like descheduling would be possibly a positive move. It really just seems like, though, on the state's level that as a country, we're moving more towards states' rights and allowing states to do what they want, as opposed to trying to get all the states on the same page about anything. And so there's just not a whole lot of time and bandwidth for the legislators to try to get all on the same page with cannabis. And that's what they're running into. So there are chances to do smaller pickoffs and do smaller things and get those passed through. But Ultimately, we need everything through. We need to be normalized. We need to be treated like other industries and that we're not a threat. We're a real benefit to society and we're a real benefit to cities, towns, counties, states. And we're not really a sexy subject, right? It's just cannabis. It's not like when you're trying to move things forward with social change. It's just those stoners over there, right? So people aren't really paying attention to the fact that when I tell people that we're not allowed a bank account to run a business, people are absolutely shocked. Uh, When I tell them really how it is to work in this industry, people are often like really surprised at the limitations that we have as business owners and even how we use our facilities or the rules we have to follow. And we understand that it had to be tough at first. It's just time to loosen that up a little bit. It's time to normalize. It's time to loosen up so all of these things can start changing at the same time. What's really challenging is it seems like we're in this phase of society now where the big motivating factor to get anything done is to bring some fear base to motivate people to do something, no matter what we're looking at across society. And it's tough to talk about something like that there's nothing to be fearful of right. with cannabis. Right. I mean, when you look at like actually edible consumption and the early statistics were that like infants in Colorado getting admitted to the ER were absolutely fine with like 20 or 30 milligrams in them. We ended up starting off with a dose of five milligrams and adults are afraid of that. But the fear that can be brought in by certain groups within that have power within the state is really what motivates the rulemaking, the legislation. So 
It's hard to motivate people with a positive outlook of things when really the fear-based actors can come in and just start shredding things, poorly founded kind of arguments. But I'll tell you, it can change if the news stories just start asking us. You know, we're here, we have been writing this history. We've been here for 12 years. We've seen it all. You're the first news that's ever reached out to our company to talk to us. So that could help too, you know, just more. Nobody's ever asked us uh, how we feel about it or what's going on. The only podcasts we've ever been on are industry podcasts. And those are far and few between because those are your friends, your buddies that do them. And so it is hard to get the story out. And the other part of the, the other side of that is you have complaints and we have real issues, but we don't want to be retaliated against either. You know, there is this, this worry that if you speak out, then you might get picked on uh, because that's how the real world works. And we don't want to get picked on. We just want to keep our nose down and do our job. And we're really happy with our crew and we love what we do. And we want to just be able to keep doing that. But the big challenges of no social consumption, no banking, no support, no normalization, it makes it really hard to keep having this bakery open. Where do you think the cannabis industry goes from here? What does it look like, let's say, in the next five to 10 years? Um, It's really hard to say. We did a lot of projections early on about where we thought things would be headed and where they would go. We broke Um, our magic eight ball. We don't do predictions anymore. (laughs) Sadly, I don't think it's going to look much different. You sound cautiously hopeful, but I also can hear the weariness of what it took to still be standing today. You are the pioneers and you wear the scars of that pioneering. No, for sure. And I think what's really helped us, though, is while we've gone through this, we get kind of strength from getting through these challenges and realizing that, okay, what we've always done is just stayed really focused on what we do and doing it really, really well. And so that's what LBs and our product is known about is the consistency of it, the quality of it that we really care about the consumer, that we care about our products. We care about and the bud so tenders. We care about the industry. We, we've been just really a lighthouse in this industry. We haven't chased the trends. We don't use distillates or extracts. We use single source, very high quality flour and high quality ingredients. While our costs have all skyrocketed because of supply chain issues, mm-hmm. we have kept our, like, our costs the same to our consumers. Like we're eating a lot in order to continue to put out the highest quality market. And we know that our consumers really appreciate what we do. And we're a very, we're a specialty product in a, in a big market. And so the challenges are very real, but we really believe in what we do. And we're really benefiting so many people every day with what we do. Really stay focused on what we do, do it extraordinarily well. And Don't worry about where the industry is going to be in five years. We're worried about just getting the high quality and making sure that we're taking care of all of our dispensaries. We're one of the only self-distributed companies here in Oregon. And so we've got really strong relationships with everybody that we work with. We believe in those. And it takes a lot of effort to do that, particularly for a small company like ours. We're under 10 people, including, and so we're distributed statewide. And so we just stay focused on having a small, very talented team. And we stay focused on what we can control, not too much energy into what we can't control or where things are going to be. That would take away precious energy from just being on with our product and our consumer. And he leads us like that. 
And I lead by being a punk and being like, I just don't like the status quo. We're not going to give up. We're not going to stop with this. I want to be able to sell baked goods out of my front door. I want to be able to sell day old edibles. I'm a Portland girl. I'm not putting up with this. We're just going to go along with it this way forever. We're going to keep fighting. And so while we keep our nose down and we do our job, we do it because it's the long game for us. You know, uh, this is, we're in our 50s. And so we've got another 15 or 20 years in a good fight on this. And we'll keep doing it as long as the state allows us to. So uh, as long as I don't say too many more salty things, the state will keep letting us do this, hopefully. <laughs> okay, fun question. If somebody has never had an LB product, what is the first product you would recommend? Uh, well, my favorite is our chai cake ball. It is my personal favorite. And it comes in 15 milligrams and they come in a three pack or a single pack. But I like it because it's spicy and it's vanilla. And I don't know, it just feels really cozy in the summer or in the winter. I like to even crunch them up and put them in ice cream and then make like an ice cream shake out of them. Pretty delicious. That's my favorite. I think everyone should try the chai. Um, and certainly with our product line, we've got everything from five milligrams up to 50 milligram items. But really, our 15 milligram cake balls are the sweet spot. And we find that they sell way better than products all across like our line. We also have 50 milligram cookies yeah. and 50 milligram cake bombs. But the 15 milligrams we hear from people throughout the industry is such a perfect dose for people, if you need a good night's sleep and you have it in the evening, you'll sleep all night and wake up refreshed right. instead of like groggy. Um, really, it's perfect to split in half. If you really, if you're new to it, I would recommend splitting it in half. On the cake ball side, we've got four different flavors. We've got a lemon, an orange dreamsicle, the chai, which is really very popular. And the triple chocolate is my favorite. Um, the triple chocolate just hits all these different notes of the chocolate. chocolate. And it just is so, it feels so decadent and so delicious that it really just depends on where you kind of fall. But the chai and the triple chocolate certainly are two of the favorites of, around the state. And but, that, I wanted to say that you, you had mentioned earlier that the state is changing up the dosing. We're actually not changing our dosing. We're keeping everything the same and not going past 50 milligrams because the can of butter hits so hard. Our customers are so loyal. They love this. They like, you know, we have customers that will go and only buy this one flavor from this one place and they buy the maximum they can buy. And so we're just going to hold still and hold normal for a while because you can't score cake balls the way the state needs us to score them. So we're just going to hold steady. So, yeah, the new rules aren't allowing us to participate in the higher potency. Our product is very different and we truly hear from people in the industry and very experienced that our 50 milligram hits harder than 100 milligrams from somebody else. Yeah. Our 15 hits harder than a 50 milligram from other companies. And so that's why we tell people, try our products if you, no matter what you've tried out there, ours is a different experience. And you really can drop that milligram level down. You can find that perfect dose where you're just perfectly sitting, perfectly standing there. You got a little smile on your face, a little loose in the hips. And you're like, why am I feeling so good? Before we finish, what would you like to make sure our listeners know about you and LB's Edibles? Well, we can. We have to give a shout out to our staff. We, like we said, we've got a really small crew here. They're, tiny but mighty. Tiny but mighty. <laughs> they're, they're food lovers. They're cannabis lovers. They really take a lot of pride in what we do. Everything is handcrafted here. All of our cake balls and cookies are hand rolled. They're hand dipped. We're not using machinery. 
Our partnership with Doghouse, we can't say enough about the crew there, the quality of the cannabis that we put into our products is there's nothing better. They get our mission. They get that we're food first, that we're not, it's not, we're not trying to be the biggest edible company in Oregon. We're trying to be our edible company in Oregon, how we do things. And, and they really appreciate that. And our staff, I, I want to add to that. They are, uh, we had to rebuild after COVID times, right? And so we have this team that's been the most amazing we've had in 12 years. And we sit down and have fun together. We make family meal together and we sit down and we really think that that goes into how our food is made because not only does our admin team sometimes work in the kitchen, but we all eat lunch together and our sales uh, team, our sales guy is a lead singer of a band and we go watch him sing with his band and we support everybody who works here. They're all really creative and talented people. And so I, I just think it really shows in what, what our products end up being because they care about everything. I mean, we we started this this adventure in a 100 square foot kitchen <laughs> in our 12, home. 12 years ago, and so we're very passionate about what we do. But we could not do it without the support of our crew. Oh my god! We can't do it without the support of our farm. We couldn't do it without the support of the retailers who support us. We, Some of the best people in this industry are the people that run these dispensaries. You know, people have no idea how hard it is. You know, you talk about going in and being overwhelmed by the product. I feel so bad for the people who work there as well, because every company has a different thing they're doing with cannabis and they have to know it and they have to be educated and they have to deal with the rolling tide of inventory and what's coming in and out and that they have to deal with ridiculous rules or putting everything away at night. And put, like the stress that the dispensaries have on them and the farms have on them, we just cannot say how much we support them. Uh, we get it. it. This is a really hard industry to work in. And so we really take offense when people think that it's just this really glamorous, you're just making a lot of money in this industry. We don't know any glamorous rich people yet. And so we look forward to meeting them. <laughs> but yeah, we can't do what we do without the people around us supporting us and doing that. And yeah. so we're very appreciative. And that comes to some people like yourself as well, because it helps. we are such a small company that we don't do any advertising. We don't have money it. for magazines. We don't have money to be sponsoring things. And we really rely on people who say, hey, let's talk to these people just because they might have something interesting to say um, to get our, the word out about our product and who we are and what we're all about. So we can't do it without people like yourself. If the audience wants to learn more about LB's Edibles, where do they go? Our website for sure. And that's what I direct people to. We've got Edible 101 facts on there that have different things to talk to you about edibles in general. You can learn about all of our different products. You can see our finder map, which shows where we're distributed throughout the state. You can find a, a dispensary near you that carries our product and go give it a try. We're in almost the whole state. The only part of the state we're not in is the Southern Oregon coast and this most Southern, Southern part of Eastern Oregon. But we're in Ontario, we're in Hines and Bend. We're all over the state. So yeah, but lbsedibles.com, E-L-B-E-S-E-D-I-B-L-E-S.com. And so that's where you can find out information all about us and also find out where to source our products. Laura. Hovering, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time, and I am very excited I had the opportunity to share your story with our audience. Travis, thank you. Travis, we can't be more grateful for the time you spent with us today. Yeah. Um, we're always open. We'd love to give you a tour of the bakery if you'd ever like to come across the yeah. river and check us out. We're just in inner southeast Portland. And so, yeah, we, we we love talking about cannabis. We love talking about edibles. If you ever want to spend like five hours talking about weed and food, we're your people. <laughs> That's Laura Brannon and Hovering LaPlante, the co-founders 
of LB's Edibles. Mainstream media. In our next episode, we'll talk about the city of Portland and how they created an office to help with regulations, to help with local licensing, but also to ensure equity in the cannabis market. That's next on Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network.